Chapter 4 of Life in the Sick Room, Essays by an Invalid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by L.T. Life in the Sick Room, Essays by an Invalid, by Harriet Martineau. Chapter 4, Life to the Invalid. There is a pause near death when men grow bold toward all things else. Quote by Robert Landor. Man will come to see that the world is the perennial miracle which the soul worketh, and be less astonished at particular wonders. He will learn that there is no profane history, that all history is sacred, that the universe is represented in an atom, in a moment of time. He will weave no longer a spotted life of shreds and patches, but he will live with a divine unity. He will cease from what is base and frivolous in his own life, and be content with all places and any service he can render. He will calmly front the morrow in the negligency of that trust which carries God with it, and so hath already the whole future in the bottom of the heart. Quote by Emerson. Begin text. Can we not all remember the time when on first taking to heart Milton, and afterwards, Akenside, before knowing anything of Dante, we conceived the grandest moment of possible existence to be that of a seraph, poised on balanced wings, watching the bringing out of a world from chaos, its completion in fitness, beauty and radiance, and its first motion in its orbit, when sent forth by the creative hand on its everlasting way? How many a young imagination has dwelt on this image, till the act appeared to be almost one of memory, till the vision became one of the persuasives to entertain the notion of human pre-existence, in which we find one or another about us apt to delight. To me, this conception was, in my childhood, one of eminent delight, and when, years afterward, I was involved in more than the ordinary toil and hurry of existence, I now and then recurred to the old image, with a sort of longing to exchange my function, my share of the world-building in which we all have to help for the privilege of the supposed seraph. Was there nothing prophetic, or at least provident, in this? Is not sequestration from the action of life a different thing to me from what it would have been if there had been no preparation of the imagination? Though I and my fellows in lot must wait long for the seraphic powers which would enable us to fully enjoy and use our position, we have the position and it is for us to see how far we can make our privilege correspond to the anticipation. Nothing is more impossible to represent in words, even to one's self in meditative moments, than what it is to lie on the verge of life and watch with nothing to do but think and learn from what we behold. Let anyone recall what it is to feel suddenly, by personal experience, the full depth of meaning of some saying, always believed in, often repeated with sincerity, but never till now, known. Everyone has felt this, in regard to some one proverb or divine scriptural clause, or word of some right royal philosopher or poet. Let anyone then try to conceive of an extension of this realization through all that has ever been wisely said of man and human life, and he will be endeavoring to imagine our experience. Engrossing, thrilling, overpowering as the experience is, we have each to bear it alone, for each of us is surrounded by the active and the busy, who have a different gift and a different office. And if not, 
it is one of those experiences which are incommunicable if we endeavor to utter our thoughts on the folly of the pursuit of wealth on the emptiness of ambition on the surface nature of distinctions of rank we are only saying what our hearers have had by heart all their lives from books through a long range of authors from solomon to burns spoken moralities really reach only those whom they immediately concern and they are such as are saying the same things within their own hearts we utter them under two conditions sometimes because we cannot help it and sometimes under a sense of certainty that a human heart somewhere is needing the sympathy for which we yearn you my fellow sufferer now lying on your couch the newspaper dropping from your hand while your eyes are fixed on the lamp are you not smiling at the thought that you have preserved up to this time more or less of that faith of your childhood that everything that is in print is true before we had our present leisure for reflection we read one newspaper perhaps occasionally one on the other side we found opposition of views but this was to be expected from diversities of minds and position now the whole press is open to us and we see what is said on all sides what an astonishing result we hear that cabinet ministers are apt to grow nervous about newspaper commentaries on their conduct to us this seems scarcely possible seeing as we do that though every paper may be useful reading for the suggestions and other lights it affords everyone is at fault as a judge everyone forgets actually or politically that it is in possession of only partial information generally speaking we find no guarding intimation to the reader that there may be information behind which might alter the aspect of the question such notice may be too much to expect of diurnal literature but the confusion made by the positiveness of all parties proceeding on their respective faulty grounds of fact a positiveness usually proportioned to the faultiness of the grounds is such as might one would think relieve cabinet ministers who have their work at heart from any very anxious solicitude about the judgments of the press in regard to unfinished affairs meantime what a work is done amidst the flat contradictions of fact and oppositions of opinion amidst the passion which sets men's wits to work to conceive of and propose all manageable motives and results what an abundance of light is struck out from a crowd of falsehoods what a revelation we have of the truth which no one man nor party of men could reveal of the wants wishes and ideas of every class or coterie of society that can speak for itself and of some that cannot observe the process to which all this conduces before we were laid aside we read as everybody read philosophical histories in which the progress of society was presented we read of the old times when the chieftain whatever his title dwelt in the castle on the steep while his retainers were housed in a cluster of dwellings under the shadow of his protection we read of the indispensable function of the priest in the castle and of the rise of his order and then of the lawyer and his order we read of the origin of commerce beginning in monopoly and then of the gradual admission of more and more parties to the privileges of trade and their settling themselves in situations favorable for the purpose and apart from the head monopolists we read of the indispensable function of the merchant and the rise of his order we read of the feuds and wars of the aristocratic orders which while fatally weakening them left leisure for the middle and lower classes to rise and grow and strengthen themselves till the forces of society were shifted and its destinies presented a new aspect we read of the sure though sometimes intermitting advance of popular interests 
and reduction of aristocratic power and privileges throughout the general field of civilization. We read of all these things, and ascended to what seems so very clear, so distinct an interpretation of what had happened up to our own day. At the same time, busy and involved as we were in the interests of the day, how little use did we make of the philosophic retrospect which might and should have been prophetic. You, I think, dreaded in every popular movement a whirlwind of destruction, in every popular success a sentence of the dissolution of society. You believed that such a man or such a set of men could give stability to our condition and fix us for an unassignable time at the point of the last settlement or what you assumed to be the latest. I, meanwhile, believed that our safety or peril for a term depended on the event of this or that movement, the carrying of this or that question. I was not guilty of fearing political ruin. I did with constancy believe in the certain advance of popular interests and demolition of all injurious power held by the few. But I believed that more depended on single questions than was really involved in such, and that separate measures would be more comprehensive and complete than a dispassionate observer thinks possible. In the midst of all this, you and I were taken apart, and have not our eyes been opened to perceive in the action of society the continuation of the history we read so long ago? I need scarcely allude to the progress of popular interests in the unequaled rapidity with which some great questions are approaching to a settlement. We have a stronger tendency to speculate on the movements of the minds engaged in the transaction of affairs than on the rate of advance of the affairs themselves. With much that is mortifying and sad, and something that is amusing, how much is there instructive, and how clear, as in a bird's-eye view of a battle, or as in the analysis of a wise speculative philosopher, is the process. We see everybody that is busy doing what we did, overrating the immediate object. There's no sin in this, and no harm, however it proves incessantly the fallibility of human judgments. It is ordered by him who constituted our minds and duties that our business of the hour should be magnified by the operation of our powers upon it. Without this, nothing would ever be done, for every man's energy is no more than sufficient for his task, and there would be a fatal abatement of energy if a man saw his present employment in the proportion in which it must afterwards appear to other affairs, the limitation and weakness of our powers causing us to apprehend feebly the details of what we see when we endeavor to be comprehensive in our views. The truth seems to lie in a point of view different from either. I doubt whether it is possible for us to overrate the positive importance of what we are doing, though we are continually exaggerating its value in relation to other objects of our own, while it seems pretty certain that we entertain an inadequate estimate of interests that we have dismissed to make room for new ones. Next, we see the present operation of old liberalizing causes so strong as to be irresistible. Men of all parties, or at least reasonable men of all parties, so carried along by the current of events that it is scarcely now a question with anyone what is the point towards which the vessel of the state is to be carried next, but how she is to be most safely steered amidst the perils which beset an ordained course. One party mourns that no great political hero rises up to retard the speed of a rate of safety, and another party mourns that no great political hero presents himself to increase while guiding our speed by the inspiration of his genius. While there are a few tranquil observers who believe that, glorious as would be the advent of a great political hero at any time, we could never better get on without one 
because never before were principles so clearly and strongly compelling their own adoption and working out their own results they are now the masters and not the servants of statesmen and inestimable as would be the bane of a great individual will which should work in absolute congeniality with these powers we may trust for our own safety and progress in their dominion over lesser wills next we perceive and we ask whether some others can be as blind to it as they appear to be that a great change has taken place in the morals at least in the conventional morals of statesmanship consistency was once and not long ago a primary virtue in a statesman consistency not only in general principle and aims through a whole public life but in views of particular questions now it has become far otherwise the incurable bigots of political society are the only living politicians except a very small number of so-called ultra-liberals who can boast of unchanged views perhaps every public man of sense and honor has changed his opinions on more or fewer questions since he entered public life it cannot be otherwise in a period of transition in a monarchy where the popular element is rising and the rulers are selected from the privileged classes alone the virtue of such functuaries now is not that their opinions remain stationary and that their views remain consistent through a whole life but that they can live and learn and there are two ways of doing this two kinds of men who do it one kind of man has all his life believed that certain popular principles are for the good of society he now learns to extend this faith to measures which he once thought ultra and dangerous and embraces these measures with an earnest heart for their own value another sort of man has predilections opposed to these measures laments on their occurrence and wishes the old state of affairs could have been preserved but he sees that it is impossible he sees the strength of the national will and the tendency of events so united with these measures that there is peril in resistance he thinks it a duty to make a timely proposal and grant of them rather than endanger the general allegiance and tranquillity by delay refusal or conflict now though we may have our preferences in regard to such public men we cannot impute guilt to either kind we see that it is unjust to impute moral or political sin in either case the great point of interest to you and me is to observe how such new necessities and methods work in society the incurables of the privileged classes of course act after their kind they are full of astonishment and feeble rage the very small number of really philosophical liberals once ultras but now nearly overtaken by the times see tranquilly the fulfillment of their anticipations and anticipate still how wisely time will show of the two intermediate parties the question is which appears most able to live and learn from the start the liberals had originally it would seem that they must hold the more dignified position of the two but judging them out of their own mouths what can we think and say to us it appears a noble thing to apprehend truth early not merely as a guess but as a ground of opinion and action a man who is capable of this is secure that his opinions will be embraced by more and more minds till they become the universal belief of men it is natural to him to feel satisfaction as the fellowship spreads both because fellowship is pleasant to himself and because the hour thereby draws nearer and nearer for society to be fully blessed with the truth which was early apparent to him when this truth becomes indisputable and generally diffused and its related action takes place his satisfaction should be complete 
what an exception to this natural process this healthy enjoyment do we witness in the political transactions of the time whatever may be thought of the consistency of the most rapidly progressive party what can be said of the philosophy of the more early liberal at every advance of their former opponents they are exasperated they fight for every tardily apprehended political truth as for a private property they not only complain you thought the contrary in such a year here are the words you spoke in such a year the reverse of what you say now but they cry on every declaration of conversion to one of their long-avowed opinions hands off that is my truth i got it so many years ago and you shan't touch it to you and me to whom it is much the same thing to look back and to look abroad it irresistibly occurs to ask whether it was thus in former transition states of society whether for instance assured and long-avowed christians exclaimed on occasion of the conversion of enlightened heathens you extolled jupiter in such a year and now you disparage him remember what you said of diana no longer ago than such a year do you think we shall admit you to our christ he is ours these ten years those of us who believe and feel that the development of moral science of which political is one department is as progressive as that of physical cannot but glance at the aspect of such conduct in relation to the discovery of new chemical agency or important heavenly body and then but enough of such illustration nobody doubts the absurdity when fairly set down though the number of grown men who have within three years committed it daily in newspapers clubs markets and the houses of parliament is so great as to be astonishing till we discern the causes proximate and final of such unphilosophical discourse and demeanor while in this conflict grave and responsible leaders grow factious while men of purpose forget their march onward in side skirmishes while reformers lose sight of the imperishable quality of their cause and talk of hopeless corruption and inevitable destruction how do affairs appear to us in virtue merely of our being out of the strife we see that large principles are more extensively agreed upon than ever before more manifest to all eyes from the very absence of a hero to work them since they are every hour showing how irresistibly they are making their own way we see that the tale of the multitude is told as it never was told before their health their minds and morals pleaded for in a tone perfectly new in the world we see that the dreadful sins and woes of society are the results of old causes and that our generation has the honor of being responsible for their relief while the disgrace of their existence belongs certainly not to our time and perhaps to none we see that no spot of earth ever before contained such an amount of infallible resources as our own country at this day so much knowledge so much sense so much vigor foresight and benevolence or such an amount of external means we see the progress of amelioration silent but sure as the shepherd on the upland sees in the valley the advance of a gush of sunshine from between two hills he observes what the people below are too busy to mark how the light attains now this object and now that how it now embellishes yonder copse and now gilds that stream and now glances upon the roofs of the far-off hamlet the signs and sounds of life quickening along its course when we remember that this is the same sun that guided the first vessels of commerce over the sea the same by whose light magna carta was signed in runnymede that shone in the eyes of cromwell after nasby fight that rose on eight hundred thousand free blacks in the west indies on a certain august morning and is now shining down into the dreariest recesses of the coal mine the prison and the cellar 
how can we doubt that darkness is to be chased away and god's sunshine to vivify at last the whole of our world is it necessary some may ask to be sick and apart to see and believe these things events seem to show that for some for many sequestration from affairs is necessary to this end for there are not a few who in the hubbub of party have let go their faith and have not to this moment found it again if there are some in the throng who can at once act and anticipate faithfully we may thank god for the blessing but they are sadly few i have said how clearly appears to us the fact and the reason of every man's exaggerating at the moment the importance of the work under his hand not less clear is the ordination as old and as continuous as human action by which all men fail more or less of obtaining their express objects while all manner of unexpected good arises in a collateral way it is usual to speak of the results of the labors of alchemists in this view everybody seeing that while we still pick out our gold from the ground we owe much to the alchemists that they never thought of but the same is true of almost every object of human pursuit and even of belief no doubt we invalids keep up our likeness to our kind in this respect as far as we are able to act at all but we have more time than others to contemplate the working of the plan on a large scale look at the projects the discoveries the quackeries of the day with regard to the projects however i am at present disposed to make one partial exemption to acknowledge as far as i can at present see one case of singularity i mean with regard to the new postage the general rule proves true in one half of it that many great and yet unascertained benefits are arising of which the projector did not dream so that a volume might be filled with anecdotes curious to the spectator and delightful to the benevolent but thus far it does not appear that any fallacy has mixed itself with the express expectations of the projector i do not speak of the failure of his efforts to get his whole plan adopted that will soon be a matter of small account a disappointment and vexation gone by a temporary trial of patience forgotten except by the record i mean that he has advanced no propositions which he does not seem perfectly able to prove uttered no promises which do not appear certain to be fulfilled this project is perhaps the noblest afloat in our country and time considering the moral interests it involves it is perhaps scarcely possible to exaggerate the force and extent of its civilizing and humanizing influences especially in regard to its spreading the spirit of home all over the occupations and interests of life in defiance of the separating powers of distance and poverty and it will be curious if this enterprise besides keeping the schoolchild at his mother's bosom the apprentice the governess and the maidservant at their father's hearth and us sick or aged people entertained daily with the flowers music books sentiment and news of the world we have left should prove an exception to all others in performing all its express promises at present i own this appears no matter of doubt as for the discoveries or quackeries of the time and who will undertake to say in what instances they are not sooner or later compounded how clear is the collateral good whatever may be the express failure those who receive all the sayings of the sorophaeus of the phrenologists and those who laugh at his maps of the mind and his so-called ethics must both admit that much knowledge of the structure of the brain much wise care of human health and faculties has issued from the pursuit for the benefit of man this mesmerism again 
who believes that it could be revived again and again at intervals of centuries if there were not something in it who looks back upon the mass of strange but authenticated historical narratives which might be explained by this agent and looks at the same time into our dense ignorance of the structure and functions of the nervous system and will dare to say that there is nothing in it whatever quackery and imposture may be connected with it however its pretensions may be falsified it seems impossible but that some new insight must be obtained by its means into the powers of our mysterious frame some fixing down under actual cognizance of flying and floating notions full of awe which have exercised the belief and courage of many wise for many centuries after smiling over old books all our lives on meeting with quaint assumptions of the humoral pathology as true while we supposed it exploded behold it arising again one cannot open a newspaper scarcely a letter without seeing something about the water cure and grave doctors who will listen to nothing the laity can say of anything new any more than they would tolerate the mention of the circulation of the blood in harvey's day now intimate that the profession are disposed to believe that there is more in the humoral pathology than was thought thirty years ago though not so much as the water curers presume is it not pretty certain then that something will come of this rage for the water cure something more than ablution temperance and exercise though its professors must be embalmed as quacks in the literature of the time is there not still another operation of the same principle involved in the case are we not growing sensibly more merciful more wisely humane toward empirics themselves when they cease to be our oracles are we not learning from their jumbled discoveries and failures that empiricism itself is a social function indispensable made so by god however ready we may be to bestow our cheap laughter upon it to us retired observers of life there is too much of this easy mockery for our taste or for the morals of society ours seems to be an age when it is to the credit of others besides statesmen that they can live and learn and there is no getting on in our learning without empiricism it is less wise than easy to ridicule its connection with non-essential modes and appearances prescribed or suggested by the passions needs or follies of the time it is most wise and should be easy to have faith that the determining conditions of all experimental discovery will be ascertained in due season if meanwhile we can obtain from the magnetizers any light as to any function of the nervous system we may excuse them from the performance of some promised feats if the homeopathists can help us to any new principle of natural antagonism to disease they may well abide the laugh which i am not aware that the serious of their number have ever provoked by any extreme and unsupported pretensions but at this rate occupying this scope i shall never have done i might write on for every day of my life and be no nearer the end of our speculations let what i have said go for specimens of our observation of life in two or three particulars when i think of what i have seen with my own eyes from one back window in the few years of my illness of how indescribably clear to me are the many truths of life from my observation of the doings of the tenants of a single row of houses it seems to me scarcely necessary to see more than the smallest sample in order to analyze life in its entireness i could fill a volume and an interesting one too with a simple detail of what i have witnessed as i said from one back window but i must tell nothing these two or three little courts and gardens ought to be as sacred as any interior nothing of the spy shall mix itself with my relation to neighbors who have ever been kind to me 
suffice it that if i saw no further into the world with the mental than with the bodily eye i should be kept in a state of perpetual wonder of pleasing wonder on the whole at the operation of the human heart and mind in its most ordinary circumstances nothing can be more ordinary than the modes of life which i overlook yet i am kept wide awake in my watch by ever new instances of the fullness of pleasure derivable from the scantiest sources of the vividness of emotion excitable by the most trifling incidents of the wonderful power pride has of pampering itself upon the most meagre food and above all of the infinite ingenuity of human love nothing perhaps has impressed me so deeply as the clear view i have of almost all if not quite the whole of the suffering i have witnessed being the consequence of vice or ignorance but when my heart has sickened at the sight and at the thought of so much gratuitous pain it has grown strong again in the reflection that if unnecessary this misery is temporary that the true ground of mourning would be if the pain were not from causes which are remediable then i cannot but look forward to the time when the bad training of children the petulances of neighbors the errors of the menage the irksome superstitions and the seductions of intemperance shall all have been annihilated by the spread of intelligence while the mirth at the minutest jokes the proud plucking of nosegays the little neighborly gifts less amusing hereafter perhaps in their taste the festal observations the disinterested and refined acts of self-sacrifice and love will remain as long as the human heart has mirth in it or a humane complacency and self-respect as long as its essence is what it has ever been but a little lower than the angels how is it possible to give an idea of what the gradual disclosure of the fates of individuals is to us in reading chronicles and the lighter kinds of history we have all found ourselves eagerly watching the course of love and domestic life and pausing over the winding up at death of the lot of personages whose mere names were all the interest we began with to us in the monotony of our lives it seems as if other people's lives slipped away with the rapidity with which we read a book while the interest we feel is that of personal knowledge it is as if time himself were present unseen whispering to us of a new kindled love of marriage with all its details of pomp and circumstance and then comes the deeper social interest the opening of a glimpse into the vista of new generations while all around the other interests of life are transacting and the children we knew at their parents knees are abroad in the world acting for themselves and putting a hand to the destinies of society of all the announcements made in the silence of our solitude none are so striking as those of deaths familiar as the thought of death is to us and natural as our own death would appear to ourselves and to everybody to present witnesses and in the midst of the activity of life the spectacle of death loses half its force it is we who feel the awful beauty of it when the great recorder intimates to us that they who were strenuous in mutual conflict have lain down side by side that to old age its infirmities matter no longer as the body itself is surrendered that the weary spirit of care is at rest and that the most active affections and occupations of life have been brought to a sudden close many young and busy persons wish as i used to wish that time would be prophet as well as watchman on new year's eves such long to divine how many and who of those they know will be smitten and withdrawn during the coming year we in our solitude do not desire to forestall the unrolling of the scroll to ponder the register of the year's deaths at its close is enough for us to whom our seclusion serves for all purposes of speculation while we are waiting every year conveys away before us the infant 
a new immortality created before our eyes the busy citizen or indispensable mother showing how much more important in the eye of god is it what we are than what we do the young maiden full of sympathy perhaps for us and of hope and the aged full of years but perhaps not less of life such is the register of every year at its close to us whose whole life is sequestered who see nothing of the events of which we hear so much or see them only as gleam or shadow passing along our prison walls there is something indescribably affecting in the act of regarding history life and speculation as one all are enhanced to us by their melting into each other history becomes like actual life life becomes comprehensive as history and abstract as speculation not only does human life from the cradle to the grave lie open to us but the whole succession of generations without the boundary line of the past being interposed and with the very clouds of the future so thinned rendered so penetrable so that we believe we discern the salient and bright points of the human destiny yet to be revealed it would be impossible to set down within any moderate limits notices of changes in the modes of life modes arising from progressive civilization and deeply affecting morals but there is one branch of one great change which i will mention as it bears a relation to the morals of the sick room we all know how the present action of our new civilization works to the impairing of privacy as new discoveries are causing all penetrating physical lights so to abound as that as has been said we shall soon not know where in the world to get any darkness so our new facilities for every sort of communication work to reduce privacy much within its former limits there are some limits however which ought to be preserved with vigilance and care as indispensable not only to comfort but to some of the finest virtues and graces of mind and life it is to be hoped that the privacy of vive voce conversation will ever remain sacred but it is known that that which ought to be as holy that of epistolary correspondence the private conversation of distant friends is constantly and deliberately violated where there are certain inducements to do so the press works so diligently and beneficially for society at large that there is a tendency to commit everything to it on utilitarian considerations of a rather coarse kind and the moment it can be made out that the publication of anything will and may do some ostensible good the thing is published whatever considerations of a different or a higher sort may lie behind if the people of note in society were inquired of they would say that the privilege the right of privacy of epistolary correspondence now exists only for the obscure and for them only till some person meets them whose zeal for the public good leads him to lay hold on all material by which anything may be supposed likely to learn anything as for people of note their letters are naturally preserved by the recipients when the writer dies these recipients are plied with entreaties and remonstrances placed in a position of cruel difficulty as it is to many between the delicacy of affection for the deceased and the pain of being made responsible for intercepting his fame and depriving society of the benefit of the disclosure of his living mind under this state of things what happens some destroy through life all the letters they receive but those on business some with an agonizing heart burn them after the writer's death to escape the requisitions of executors many alas resign their privilege of freedom of epistolary speech and write no letters which any one would care to preserve for an hour some call in their own letters a painful process both to writer and receivers of such as do not care what becomes of their letters there is no need to say anything their feelings require no consideration for their letters cannot be of a private 
nor, therefore, of the most valuable kind. The misery of the liability is in regard to letters of affection and confidence, letters which the writer could no more bear to see again than to have notes taken of the outpourings of his heart in an hour of confidence. It is too certain that many such letters are now never written which crave to be so, and it is much to be feared that some letters, purporting to be private, are written with a view to ultimate publication, and thus the receiver is insulted, or there is a sacrifice of honesty all round. I do not see any probability of a dearth of biographies. I believe that there will always be interest enough in human life and character to secure a sufficiency of records of individuals, that there will always be enough of persons whose letters are not a very private kind, always enough of provided and exceptional cases to serve society with a sufficiency of biography of a duly analytical kind. But if I did not believe this, if I believed that the choice lay between a sacrifice of the completest order of biography and that of the inviolability of private epistolary correspondence, I could not hesitate for a moment. I would keep the old and precious privacy, the inestimable right of everyone who has a friend and can write to him. I would keep our written confidence from being made biographical material as anxiously as I would keep our spoken conversations from being noted down for the good of society. I would keep the power of free speech under all the influences of life and fate, and leave biography to exist or perish. And pretty sure it is of existence. It has, for its material, the life and actions of all men and women of note, their printed and otherwise public writings and sayings, the recollections of those who knew them, and, in no small number of cases, material which, however we may wonder at, we have only to take and be thankful for. A Doddridge keeps a copy of every letter or note he ever wrote, labeled and put by for posthumous use. A Darblay spends her last hours in elaborating her revelations and transactions, private and public, of her day, and revises for publication the expressions of fondness and impulse, written to sisters and other intimates, long dead, a Rousseau here and there gives more. One way and another, the resources of biography are secure enough, without encroachment on a sacred process of intercourse. Biography will never fail. Would that we were all equally secure of a higher matter, our right of freedom of epistolary speech. But when all are dead and nobody concerned remains to be hurt, remonstrates one. The reply is that as long as people of note who love their friends remain, there are some left to be concerned and injured. But, says another, would you object to do good after your death by your letters being published? The reply is that, in the supposition, I see an enormous sacrifice of a higher and greater good to a lower and smaller. No letters, in any number and of any quality, if they exhibited all the wisdom of Solomon and all the graces of the Queen of Sheba, could do so much good as a single clear and strong protest against the preservation of strictly private letters for biographical material. But, says another, had you not better leave the matter to the discretion of survivors? Surely you can trust your executors. Surely you can trust the friends who will survive you. The reply is, when this critical state of our morals is passed, no doubt executors may be trusted about letters as about other matters. But the very point of the case is that its morality is not yet ascertained by those who do not suffer under the liability and have not fellow feeling with those who do. My executors may very sincerely think it their duty to publish my most private letters, and even to be now laying them by in order for the purpose, while I feel that, once aroused to a view of the liability, 
I could more innocently leave to the discretion of survivors the disposition of lands and money than that of my private utterances to my friends. In a case of differing or opposing views of duty, if my own is clear and stringent, I cannot innocently leave the matter to the chances of other persons' convictions. There cannot be a more strictly personal duty, and I must do it myself. I have, therefore, done it. Having made the discovery of the preservation of my letters for purposes of publication hereafter, I have ascertained my own legal rights and acted upon them. I have adopted legal precautions against the publication of my private letters. I have made it a condition of my confidential correspondence that my letters shall not be preserved, and I have been indulged by my friends, generally, with an acquiescence in my request that my entire correspondence, except such as relates to business, shall be destroyed. Of course, I do as I would be done by. The privacy I claim for myself I carefully guard for others. I keep no letters of a private and passing nature. I know that others are thinking and acting with me. We enjoy by this provision a freedom and fullness of epistolary correspondence, which could not possibly exist if the press loomed in the distance, or executors' eyes were known to be in wait hereafter. Our correspondence has all the flow and lightness of the most secret talk. This is a present reward, and a rich one, for the effort and labor of making our views and intentions understood. But it is not our only reward. We perceive that we have fixed attention upon what is becoming an important point of morals, and we feel in our inmost hearts that we have done what we could to guard from encroachment an important right, and from destruction a precious privilege. This may appear a strange statement to persons whose privacy is safe in their obscurity. Those who know in their own experience the liabilities of fame will understand and deeply feel what I have said. I have mentioned above that, to us in seclusion, history, life, and speculation assume a continuity such as would not have been believed possible by ourselves in former days, when they appeared to constitute departments of study as separate as moral studies can be. It would be curious and interesting to an observer of the human mind to pass from retreat to retreat and watch the progress of this fusion of objects, to see the formerly busy members of society, the practical man, growing speculative in his turn of thought, the speculative writer nourishing more and more of antiquarian taste, and the antiquary finding seclusion serve as well as the passage of ages, and viewing the modes and instruments of the life of today with the eye and the gusto of the antiquary of ten centuries hence. And not only in their studies would men of such differing tastes be found to be brought together under the influence of sequestration from the world, there are matters of moral perception and taste in which they would draw near no less remarkably. The one conspicuous, undying humanity, which is the soul of all the forms of life that they contemplate, must be, to all, the sun of their intellectual day, beneath whose penetrating light all adventitious distinctions melt into insignificance. Distinctions of rank, for instance, become attenuated to a previously inconceivable degree. To the antiquary, as well as to the most radical speculator, there would be little more in the sovereign entering the sick-room than any other stranger whom kindness might bring. It requires that we should live in the midst of the arrangements of society, that our conventional ideas should be nourished by daily associations, in order to keep up even the remembrance of differences of hereditary rank, so overpowering in our view are the great interests of life which are common to all, duty, thought, love, joy, sorrow, and death. If the sovereign were to enter our rooms, there would be strong interests and affections connected with her. 
but interests relating to her responsibilities and her destinies, and scarcely at all to her rank, to the singularity and not the exaltation of her position. It is a strong doubt to me whether one of high degree, placed in our circumstances, could long retain aristocratic ideas and tendencies, whether to the proudest noble, shut up in his chamber for five years, the cottage child he sees from his window, the footboy who brings his fuel, must not necessarily become as imposing to his imagination and his heart as the young princes of the blood. Something of the same process takes place, even with regard to the distinctions of intellectual nobility. As for the nothingness of literary fame, amidst the stress of personal trial, except in the collateral benefits it brings, an hour in the sick-room might convince the most superstitious worshipper of celebrity. As for the rest, in the presence of the general ignorance, on the brink of that black abyss, our best lights are really so ineffectual that it is impossible to pride ourselves on our intellectual differences, ranging merely as from the torch to the farthing candle. In truth, in our retreat, moral considerations are all in all. Moral distinctions are the chief, and moral interests, common to all, are supreme. They are so from their essential nature, and they are so to us especially, from the singular advantage of our position for seeing their beauty and the abundance of it. We could make known what is little suspected by busy stirrers in the world, and wholly disbelieved by despondent moralists who dwell amidst its apparent confusion, that there is a deep heaven lying enclosed in the very center of society, and a genuine divinity residing in the heart of every member of it, which might, if we would but recognize it, check our longing to leave the present scene, to search for God and heaven elsewhere. All that is most frivolous and insignificant is ever most noisy and obtrusive. All that is most wicked is most boastful and audacious. All that is worst in men and society has a tendency to come uppermost, and thus the most superficial observers of life are the most despondent. Meantime, whatever is holy, pure, and peaceable works silently and unremittingly, and while turbulent passions are exhausting themselves before the eyes of men, a calm and perpetual renovation is spreading outwards from the central heart of humanity. I have the image before my eyes at this moment, the awful type of the blessed reality, in the tossing sea which the neighbors dare hardly look upon. It rages and rolls, it dashes the driftwood on the shore, and heavy squalls come driving over it like messengers of dismay. At this very instant, how calm are its depths! Their light dwells, as long as there is light in heaven, and there is no end to the treasures of beauty on which it shines. If it be a fable that there are happy beings dwelling there, basking and singing, unconscious of the tempests overhead, it is certainly true that it is thus in the upper world, of which the ocean is a type. It is true, as a friend said to me, that the dark is full of beautiful things. Without an image, speaking in the plainest and most absolute terms, the least known parts of human life are full of moral beauty. I am fully persuaded that, if we wish to extend and confirm our ideas of heaven, we should not wander back and afar to the old Eden, or forward and upward to some bright star of the firmament, but we should look into the retired places of our own actual world, of our own country, of our own town and village. We should look into the faces to be met in the street every day. We should look round by the light of our common sun. However, my immediate business is to say that we, who are not abroad in the streets, and cannot go in bodily presence into the by-places of life, have more of this heaven disclosed to us than others, because we appear to need it more. 
if any one of us could and might tell what we know of the good of human hearts the heavenly deeds of human hands the desponding would hang their heads no longer with fear but with shame for their fear if i alone might make a record of the heavenly aspects which have been presented in this one room such a record would extinguish all revilings of man and of life and when i think that what has appeared to me must in natural course have appeared to all my companions in infirmity when i gather into one all these revelations of the real moral life of society i perceive that till death satisfies us in regard to a local heaven we may well be satisfied with that which lies all round about us not mute while tender and pitying voices speak to us nor wholly unseen while tearful or kindling eyes meet our own thus in some few of its leading aspects does life appear to the invalid End of chapter four